good to be with you today. Uh, it is incredibly hot in this room right now, and this is a message I am a bit fired up to give. This is one of my favorite passages, and, uh, and where I'm going to land this thing is something that has just been so, it's so simple, but it's been so transformative for my life. I say all that, that if I just start getting really gross on the screen here, just please, please forgive me. Uh, and I really want to encourage everybody, join us in the Zoom right after this message. We're going to take communion together, um, do a little, just a little bit of liturgy together. I think it's really important more than ever as we enter into the, what are we at, the five-month mark? Uh, of uh, of quarantine that we actually begin to see some each other's faces. So for those of you not watching in the Zoom right now, watching on the platform or on Facebook or anywhere else, I want to invite you, encourage you even, um, jump on the Zoom right after. A link will pop up and we'll be right there. And uh, and we're going to, um, I'm going to lead us in a moment of communion. Turn your screen on. Even if you're looking a little haggard today, don't worry about it. You're really small. Uh, I think it's important that we see each other. So I'm going to jump right in and uh, in true Andrew form, I'm going to start talking about something that you didn't see coming. I'm going to talk about Andre Agassi. Uh, all the 14-year-olds in the room, uh, you have no idea who this is at all. One of my favorite tennis players uh, is this, this uh, player named Andre Agassi. He retired in 2006, and he came out with an autobiography recently called Open. It took me a while to read this book, but it's fantastic. Even if you're not a tennis fan, sports fan at all, it's just phenomenal Like hearing his story of uh, heartache and redemption. In this book, Agassi, one of the greatest tennis players arguably ever, uh, tries to be really vulnerable and open about the person that he really was behind the scenes. He confesses that early in his career, uh, he was incredibly addicted to this recreational drug, crystal meth. He had confessed that he had lied about his drug use in order to evade drug tests. And then all sorts of tennis players at the time reacted in all sorts of different ways to his confession. Uh, one uh, player in particular, Martina Navratilova, perhaps the greatest female tennis player ever, came out with these like stinging comments about Agassi and his drug confession. She spoke incredibly harshly about him, compared him to, here's another reference, some of you may not get Roger Clemens, who had lied about using steroids, which are different because, you know, they're this performing enhancing drug, but still she kind of came at him. And so there's an interview that happened around the time this book came out with Katie Couric on 60 Minutes. And she tells Agassi uh, what Martina Navratilova had said. She says these, repeats these harsh comments to him on camera. Uh, and his reaction was like heartbreaking as he goes into tears and he just says, quote, I would hope that a person with a drug addiction could receive compassion from others rather than condemnation. And everybody in the room, right, said amen. Jesus um, has this phrase, and some of you may use this phrase often and don't even know that it actually originates with Jesus. And these words are often misunderstood, even abused sometimes. And the line is simply this, do not judge or you yourself will be judged. He drops this line in the midst of a number of other sort of classic, iconic Bible stories. It's in the midst of this long sermon that he gives called the Sermon on the Mount. Some argue it was a number of sermons kind of put together. But there's this brilliance to the, to the form of this message where Jesus is walking people through what it looks like to live in this new humanity, this new kingdom that he's announcing that is inbreaking here and now. And he... Um, Right around this phrase of do not judge, he talks about uh, 
Uh, be, be wary of the plank in your own eye if you're trying to take like the plank out of somebody else's. It's in this section that he's talking about, um, uh, why do you worry about what you'll wear? Like God takes care of the flowers and the birds. Um, and then he also has these interesting lines about not throwing pearls before swine, which is another line that kind of pops up in popular songwriting and literature from time to time. There's all of these iconic lines in the scripture. And what I wanna do and I'm going to need you all to focus a little bit, uh, a little bit harder than normal, maybe this Sunday, is I want to walk us through this passage. I'm going to get a little bit technical, and then I'm going to um, zoom out and take a snapshot of kind of where we are in his larger sermon, just so you can see the brilliance of what Jesus is doing and why exactly he's talking about not judging. So with all that set up, This word judge, the Greek word here is krino, and it has at least three main meanings in the New Testament. So the first is in John 18, 31. Jesus is before Pilate uh, on the day he's gonna go to the cross. Pilate says to the Jewish leadership, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. This meaning for the word judge here is one of judging something in the court of law, uh, which we're all relatively familiar with, Judge Judy, right? The The second meaning, I don't know why I said that. The second meaning for judge is found in 1 Corinthians 10, 14 to 15. Paul writes, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say, and the passage goes on. This meaning is one of sort of using your intellectual faculties, using your mind to make a decision or discernment. When someone asks you like what color the grass is, you're going to make a judgment that it's green or like my backyard sort of Brown. Our, our, our minds make thousands of these kinds of judgments every single day. They make judgments about the world and about issues and about people, about what's right and about what's wrong. Obviously, I hope this is obvious, Jesus does not mean to say that we should stop making decisions and discernments. Because in verse 15, he says, hey, hey, by the way, watch out for false prophets, which implies we have to discern, right, what a false prophet is. Occasionally, a person um, kind of caught up in something stupid or does something wrong will say, don't tell me that what I just did is wrong. You are judging. To be very clear before we keep going, Jesus is not saying stop making decisions about what's right and what's wrong. So what does he mean when he says do not judge? And why do I want to talk to all of us about this today? He means this third meaning, and the meaning uh, of the Greek word for judge here shows up in Romans 2.1 and 1 Corinthians 4, uh, verse 5. So first, Romans 2.1. So this is a passage, uh, a letter that the writer Paul, if you're new to the Bible, wrote to this church in Rome, and he uses this phrase like Jesus does here. And he writes, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. This third meaning of the word judge is to make a determination about someone that carries with it a sense of condemnation. If you're taking notes, just write the word condemnation. It's a sense that you are less than. And when we do this, we're actually playing the role of of God. We see this third use uh, of the word judge again in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Paul writes, quote, therefore judge nothing before the appointed time 
Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of people's hearts. In other words, do not draw up a conclusion about the deepest motives of people's hearts. That's God's job, not yours. This is what Jesus is getting at. When Jesus says, do not judge, he means do not try and do God's job. Do not come to a conclusion about the deepest motives and heart of a person. And then in your own mind, mark that person as less than. When you try and do that, you try and do God's job. And and God, I think, would say you're not very good at it. If you insist on trying to do God's job of, of judging, you're going to be judged according to your own standard in some way. So let's be really honest. And maybe this isn't you. Maybe this is just like your neighbor or your, you know, your spouse. You would never do any of this. But how often does it happen that someone says to you, uh, someone says, sorry, something to you that, like, you, that offends you, um, that you come to a conclusion about a person's deep motives and you become upset and you mark that entire person in your mind as sort of like less than you? How often does it happen that you watch somebody like make some epic mistakes, fall into sin, and you come to a conclusion about that person's deepest motives and you mark that person in your mind as less than? How often does it happen that you hear a person share their philosophy of life? Or maybe it's just like their philosophy of parenting or work or faith. And you come to a conclusion about that person's deepest motives and you mark that person in your mind as less than. And this definitely doesn't happen in politics at all, right? How often do we communicate these judgments to these people by our choice of words or our tone or our body language? How often do we communicate to people because you did this, or said that, or believe this, I've come to the conclusion that you are less than. I, I essentially, in some very subtle but very real ways, condemn you. Now, here's the kicker. How often is our communication of this judgment really deep down an attempt to control or fix the other person? And this is what I want to zero in on. When we communicate judgment through shaming or ignoring or critiquing, usually we're doing it with the motivation of trying to control or fix the other person, which makes sense of the, the story that surrounds this passage of do not judge. Jesus says, first be fixed yourself. And he tells a little parable that probably would have drawn a bunch of laughs. He says, like, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? and pay no attention to the blank, to the uh, plank in your own. So Jesus being trying to be, I don't know if he's not trying to be funny, he's probably being really funny. Imagine a person carrying around a two by four, like covering one of their eyes, and the person comes up to you and says, hey, 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 you, you got this piece of sawdust in yours. Let me help you get rid of that. No, no, you need to get rid of like that if you want to be a good Christian or something. Jesus says, get that plank of wood out of your eye. Get yourself fixed first. Turn from your own sin first. Then you'll be able to help your brother. And then right after this section, you're still following with me. Then we have verse six. So do not judge the sawdust plank deal. And then we have this passage, one of my all time favorite passages, just because it's so 
ridiculous on the surface of things, but what Jesus is doing is so brilliant. In verse six, he says, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. The classic pastor joke here is like, that's easy to do. Easy to do, Andrew. I never was tempted to throw pearls to pigs. <laughs> Jesus says that there are dogs and there are pigs out there who have proven themselves to be so closed and so hostile to truth that you should not waste your time there. Have you ever tried with humility and love to bring the truth to somebody, to bring a consideration maybe even to somebody, to come as a person of goodwill? And that person's just completely stubborn, hardened in heart and mind. It's the, it's the type of person that gives you like no opening, the type of person that gives uh, the truth you bring absolutely zero consideration and is gonna reject what you have to say again and again and again. Jesus says, don't, don't, don't waste your time. Go and minister to people who are open to the truth. So what does this verse, uh, this passage in verse six have to do with verses one to five? What does throwing your pearls before pigs have to do with do not judge? Here's where I wanna bring this all together. So right now, what I wanna do, if you're following along, is just zero out a little bit more on the larger section of the Sermon on the Mount that this whole do not judge passage is in. Again, if you're still tracking with me, don't judge. They've got the plank and the sawdust. Don't throw pearls before pigs. There's this whole section here that's tied together, but it fits inside a larger context. So in chapter six, verse 19 to 24, we have do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and, and rust destroy. This is a whole long section about your stuff. Basically, we reveal what our treasures are by how we try to protect them and secure them and keep them. And, and Jesus is saying, quite simply, all that stuff that we pour so much energy into, all that stuff will, is going to fade. It's not going to last. So Jesus is asking, is your heart set on the things that will last forever? Right, I find this is the, one of those passages that is so universal. People very, very rarely have a hard time at least agreeing with this. It's also one of the hardest passages actually to kind of live by. I'm not going to live my life geared towards the accumulation of stuff. Do we believe, he's asking us, that some things will last? So he says, treasures in heaven are things that evil cannot touch. The good work of love that will win out in the end, the work of the kingdom, um, like this is the stuff that will last forever. So the point here, again, if you're taking notes, just write this phrase down, is entrust your stuff to God. So this section starts with entrust your things, entrust your stuff to God. Then chapter six, verse 25 to 34, this whole section. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and your body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. Yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, uh, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor is dressed like one of those. 
He says, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to drink. The other people who don't have a heavenly mindset, they run after that stuff. And then he ends with, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. What's Jesus saying here? The point here is entrust yourself to God. And trust yourself to God. And trust your stuff. And trust yourself. I mean, this is hard, right? We can just pause here. This is really a sermon in and of itself. God wants us to trust the course of our life to him, our dreams, our calling, our drive. I don't believe God is going to entrust the renewing of the world, which is what we're called to join him in, to people who don't want to fully trust his leadership. Be free. Cast your cares, Peter says, on him. So entrust yourself to God. So the passage that we started with, do not judge others and do not give your pearls of truth to pigs. The point here is that you're being invited to entrust others to God. Those people who offend you by what they say or do or believe, those people who you are tempted to judge, don't. Those people you are tempted to ostracize and treat as less than, don't. And trust them to God. He's the one who changes people, not you. God is the judge, not you. God is the judge, not you. So entrust your stuff to God. Entrust yourself to God. Don't worry and entrust others. He is the judge. Let him do his job. There is a release that happens in my soul every time I hear myself say that phrase. Every time I ask the Lord, Lord, would you help me entrust other people to God? Because it goes even bigger than the folks that I disagree with. It's the expectations so often that are placed on me. Help me, Lord, to entrust these people over here to God. Because if you are like me, you do try to fix and manipulate and control and spin and jockey. And you can do this in aggressive ways or to all my, my passive introverted uh, sisters and brothers out there. We do this by shunning and ignoring and hiding and just letting go. There is a difference between saying, forget you, and actually saying, no, no I, I'm going to place this person into God's hands. I can't fix that right now. I, I can't go there right now. But before I step to the place of condemnation and bitterness and anger, which leads to anxiety, which actually creates enslavement of me, of you, before I move to a deep place of unforgiveness, before I get there, I can actually go, I'm going to entrust you to God. There's something beautiful and something simplistic here. And it's simply this, that God is the answer. <laughs> that Christ is the answer to every question. That there is a, an invitation from Jesus here that when we look at the accumulation of our stuff, when we look at the way that we... 
we craft a life based on things that are are not as good and not as true, not as beautiful, that are less than. That we, we close ourselves off to the freedom and life that is found in union with Jesus. When he stays first, you stay second. When you can entrust the outcomes, when you can entrust the paychecks, when you can entrust whatever static is coming your way from others. When you can do that, there is freedom. God's presence and God's commands, his love is always better than your desire and your worries and your stuff, always. And sometimes I just think we hold on so tight. We hold on so tight. And if there's something in your life that isn't submitted to him. If there's spaces in any one of these categories we talked about today that you need to name and seek to actually let go of. Places where you need to let Jesus sort of take the wheel. I wanna encourage you to do that as we go to the communion table today. The reason that we can be content in all things and in all relationships is because we already have that which is ultimately important. And that gets highlighted for us at the communion table. And so I'm going to invite you um, uh, to, to join us. Um, there's a, a link that's right across my chest right now. Uh, there's a link in that's in the chat. So you can go to there, go there and um, take a moment, grab the bread, grab the cup. I'll be right back here. You join me. And, uh, and we're going to take the bread and the cup. And we're going to remember this love and forgiveness and grace that is, is, uh, is ours. And we're going to remember today as we come to the communion table who is ultimately on the throne, who we can entrust our outcomes to, who we can entrust others to. We're going to remember together as we take the bread and the cup. Let me pray for us and then we'll transition. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, that this next step can be, um, can be complicated or uncertain for some. I just, I have a sense that right now there are people who, it's, I mean, even as I'm preaching this, I'm like, things are coming to mind for me. Things I need to let go, things I need to entrust, people I need to, to, um, to entrust to you, Lord. And the process of doing that, just like the process of forgiveness is usually not like a one, like a, a one shot deal. And so Lord, I just, I pray that you would, um, you would bring people, Lord, around folks that have some really big things they need to entrust to help them in that journey of letting go. Lord, you can and do all the time, Lord, just miraculously set us free in a moment. And so, Lord, um, I pray that you do do that, Lord, for those that are just, are just struggling and beaten down by the stuff that they own or beaten down by the, the, the plans that they have crafted for themselves and the way they haven't let any of those go. They haven't let you into one plan of their life, into any bit of their finances, Lord, and to those that are just so burdened by relationships that they have in their life right now, trying to control everybody and everybody's opinion of them. Lord, I, I just, I ask, Lord, that you would move mightily in this moment. Would you set set people free and 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 for folks that are watching lord who just might be just intrigued just a little bit of what it might look like to follow you or begin to follow you 
to read your teachings. Lord, I pray that this would be a moment that would just be marked by, that, that you would mark, Lord, as a new chapter. Thank you, Lord, for this space. And uh, with great anticipation, Lord, we look forward to coming to your table. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. See you in a moment.